because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. Sitting in for Alex Epstein today, I'm Don Watkins, Director of Education at the Center for Industrial Progress, and with me is CIP's Head of Research, Stefan Henna. Stefan, how's it going? Hey, it's great, Don. All right, well, we'll jump in with our first story. So several projectiles struck the largest oil processing plant in the world in Saudi Arabia last Sunday, and it led to a series of fires that took out nearly half of Saudi Arabia's oil production, which is 5% of the global daily oil output. And as a result, we've seen oil prices increase by about 15%, and it is... uh, You know, there's a discussion of how long it's going to take to fix everything with, I think, the latest estimates I saw from IHS market estimating probably 30 to 120 days before everything is back online. And, uh, you know, there's a risk that it could be even larger. The Trump administration has blamed the attack on Iran with the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, saying that. Uh, it was an unprecedented attack on the world's energy supply. And, you know, this is the latest of several attacks that have taken place on Saudi Arabia's energy infrastructure in recent months. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Certainly, it's quite fraught with foreign policy implications. Um, but one thing that occurred to me listening to all of this was. Many of the leading Democratic candidates for the presidency want to ban fracking. And if you think, yeah, this was pretty painful, um, given the fact that we have a massive contribution to the worldwide oil supply from the United States. But like if that had not existed, if they had actually already been in power and already banned fracking like you can just imagine how catastrophic this could potentially be and you know one way to think about it is that basically what the democratic candidates want to do is they want to send like a more polite form of drones and cruise missiles to attack the united states energy supply so you know their goal is not that prices rise by 15 percent but much much more And if you just think about the fact that oil is such a vital requirement of human life that countries go to war for it, and I think properly, that is, like, if you're, if, if there's a resource that your the survival of your citizens depends on, and you need to protect that resource, and it is such a great achievement that now we don't have to go to war solely in the grounds of protecting access to that resource because we have this incredible domestic energy industry to voluntarily call for destroying that energy. And that I think is like that automatically disqualifies you from the presidency. And that is even setting aside just the catastrophic effect it would have on the lives of your citizens. But just from a security perspective, that we would want to leave our access to energy in the hands of these very unstable and often unfriendly countries, I think is uh, is really unconscionable. Now, there's more to say about it. I think um, you know part of the context that 
is alive here is it's not just an issue that uh, Saudi Arabia is an alleged ally, which I think is problematic, uh, and that you know Iran has attacked their oil infrastructure. Um, but of course, Iran has been attacking the United States for decades. So we'll see how this plays out in the foreign policy front. But purely from an energy perspective, I think it's it's worrisome, and it's you know and and it's only made less worrisome by the fact that we have had the freedom to produce energy. Stefan, have you followed this story at all? Yeah, but I just want to make a more general point because the discussion often then goes like, oh, we are so dependent on foreign oil. And even if we are not, like this uh, sort of impacts our uh, domestic oil and energy prices and uh, it's a constant threat. And that's another reason why we should get off oil and gas but it's not like um, other energy technologies wouldn't be vulnerable to things like that right so iran has previously uh, threatened to shut down an important oil trade uh, route through its uh, um, local waters the coastline and other technologies are also complex and require international trade so it's not like the United States or Pax Americana or however you want to call it, the hegemonial role of the United States would vanish if you could find something that actually replaces oil. Um, so international trade is very important if you want to build a nuclear power plant or a solar panel or a wind turbine or a gas power plant. You know, everything will be impacted um, by this kind of threat of uh, trade disruption. And it's not like, oh, America can cut half its uh, defense budget just because we found something better than oil. That will not happen. Um, and so this kind of terrorist attack will always target something that is vital. So in, in this case, it's a testimony to the importance of oil, of course. But, you know, they can enemies of, of free markets and of, of free countries can target vital trade routes and uh, other infrastructure just as easily. And one of the big uh, uh, and interesting points here was that um, what I read today is that Saudi Arabia actually has a stockpile of oil to fulfill the contractual obligation. So they have a sort of trade obligation on a daily basis to deliver certain amounts of oil to other countries and they can, like in the short term, make up for the production loss, not entirely, but they can at least minimize the damage somewhat. So, and you couldn't, of course, if, if some vital piece of infrastructure that delivers something like grid power, uh, you couldn't replace it as easily. So the stockpiling of oil is, is an important security item here. And one more point. Um, just imagine how great it would be if some other uh, players in the global oil market would be as free as the United States, notably Venezuela, the country with the largest oil reserves on the planet, which has seen a, a massive decline recently because of the unfree or, or anti-freedom policies implemented there. So the d diversification would be a, a great strategy as well. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a mistake that's often made to equate desiring energy security, which I think is a legitimate value with desiring energy independence. Whereas 
what you want is you want a division of labor and you want free trade with friendly countries. Um, but there, but there is a real value in not being dependent on, you know, like I said, that a, either countries that are unable to defend themselves or countries that are, uh, hostile and certainly to be artificially dependent, um, I think is a, is a great mistake, but yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, the fact that we, uh, get energy from countries like Canada and could get countries from, or oil from energy from, uh, countries like Venezuela, if they weren't going down such a, uh, awful path, like that is a virtue, not something to be shied away from. Stefan, what's your first story? So since electric vehicles are such a hot topic right now, I thought we should talk a bit about Norway. And uh, just recently, I, I read an article on oilprice.com that deals with the policies that have made um, Norway such a success story, at least if you listen to the advocates of the technology. And so in 2019, um, so far, about half of new cars purchased in uh, Norway um, were electric vehicles. Now, this is a country with about 5 million citizens, so it's not a huge market, but it's uh, notably notable that, that so many people, such a high share of people would um, go and buy an electric vehicle in this country, in particular because it's a very northern latitude uh, country, so low temperatures, particularly in the winter, are not really good for the capacity of battery electric vehicles. Um, so what's not to like? Uh, Norway, Norwegians just uh, love their electric vehicles, right? So the total share is now above 10% and still rising. Um, so is, isn't that something we should emulate if we want to get off oil or have an alternative to um, liquid fuels and uh, in this oilprice.com article it is pointed out that this is not a, the result of a competitive product entering the market and then just you know steamrolling fossil fuel cars or diesel cars and gasoline cars but it's a ma massive distortion of the uh, vehicle market in Norway. So just a few examples here. Electric vehicles are exempt from the 25% value-added tax at purchase and also other taxes and they get free public parking and get uh, free charging very often on public parking spaces. And they also can use additional lanes like bus lanes and so on, which the fossil fuel powered cars cannot get. And on the other side of this, the internal combustion engine cars, so gasoline and diesel cars, will have to pay special taxes on the fuels, on the, on the cars and so on and so forth. So there's a, there's a very massive uh, favoritism going on in uh, in favor of electric vehicles and so as a result of this a uh, conventional uh, internal combustion engine car costs several thousand dollars more at purchase and it's significantly more expensive to operate so everything is rigged against fossil fuel cars and everything is rigged in favor of electric vehicles of course uh, and this amounts to a benefit of about eight thousand dollars per vehicle which only counts the uh, purchasing advantage of the uh, electric vehicles. And so the total subsidy expenditure of the government of Norway is 2 billion per year. So this doesn't sound a lot to an American, but in Norway, as I said, there are only 5 million uh, inhabitants. So this is quite a lot. And if you would scale this 
up to you know the entire vehicle market if everyone would buy an electric vehicle in Norway uh, that would be over 20 billion dollars uh, in subsidies per year and that would dwarf many uh, welfare uh, expenditures on the government uh, um, budget and so in my view the real headline about the success would be Uh, despite absurd amounts of subsidies and other market distortions, many Norwegians still don't want electric vehicles. So why would anyone say not want an electric vehicle if the government essentially says, if you're buying an internal combustion engine car, you will have real problems. You will be in the bad lanes uh, on the road. You will have to buy super expensive fuel that we put a special tax on and the electric vehicles will get their power for free on public uh, parking spots that are also free for them. And so every time you, you go somewhere in the public space and, and look for a parking lot, you, you will be disappointed not to have an electric vehicle. So, But still, about half of Norwegians every year will not buy an electric vehicle. That's, that's the difference in uh, utility between electric vehicles and internal combustion engine cars. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me just the celebratory nature of these claims, like look at how EVs are taking over the country. It's, you know, uh, when MP3 players first came out, there was um, one that came out by Microsoft called the Zune, which was just like a complete joke and nobody liked it and it was awful. But you could just imagine if Microsoft had decided to, you know, play the game where It, it got subsidized so that it cost you know hundreds of dollars less than than uh, the Apple MP3 player coming out and saying like look we're crushing iPod we are you know this is this is the music player of the future it's like no you're the welfare case uh, that's costing us a bunch of money and you're still so lousy that only 50% of the people are willing to put up with you even at this you know ridiculous advantage and so it's like look i have nothing inherently against evs but when you have a whole society that's basically forced to subsidize something that's so inferior that even with these kind of massive subsidies you you still are leaving about half of your citizens saying yeah no i'm i want nothing to do with it like that is just uh really absurd and And one of the things that it does, and this is what nobody talks about, is it actually holds back. The more that you're the, you have this artificial life support of an industry by government, the more that it holds the industry back because it reduces the competitive pressure ever to become really good. That, and particularly to become good on price, so that you know, you know, even if they can fix the. Uh, price problem they still have the implicit price of having to stand around while a thing charges and you know we've talked about some of the other problems with evs like range and and the scalability but uh th you know at least they should have every incentive to try to really solve the problem and provide affordable transportation rather than just the illusion of affordable transportation that comes from government support All right my next story um goes to i saw a bunch of uh stories this week about greta thunberg the 16 year old climate activist who's in the u.s right now getting ready for the upcoming u.n climate summit that i'm sure we'll have lots to say about and uh, i read a few interviews with her and there's just a bunch of points that she made that i i actually found 
quite interesting. So I'll just read a few of them and uh, I'll have a few interjections along the way. So in one interview, she makes the point that what I want to do now is, um, what I want people to do now is become aware of the crisis that is here. And she says that that includes uh, shaming those who need shaming. It's what I've been doing for quite a while now, and it actually has a lot of impact when you speak truth to power, when you don't bother to be polite because this is such a serious crisis and you cannot, we cannot focus on what we can and cannot say. Now we must speak clearly about what is happening. When asked uh, how she found the confidence to speak so clearly, Thunberg said, I just know what is right and I want to do what is right. I want to make sure I have done anything, everything in my power to stop this crisis from happening, to prevent it. And I actually think like that's, uh, there's a lot that's admirable in that attitude in the sense of like, yeah, if you think that something's right, you should be willing to speak out. You should be polite. And my real question is why in the world don't we see fossil fuel supporters doing the same thing? That is, you hear all the time people pointing out, like, look, the the fossil fuels are vital to our economy. They can't be replaced. And, th and yet you hear almost no public voices. And to the extent that you do, including people in the industry whose very jobs and potentially freedom, you know, is at risk, given that some of these executives could literally be thrown into prison, um, depending on who gains power. Like, the fact that we're the point about well we have to be polite and we can't say anything you know critical about solar wind even though you know having laws that outlaw fossil fuels and replace them with solar and wind would be a catastrophe for your friends and your family in the entire country and the idea that we're just going to tiptoe and be polite and nobody want, has the confidence to speak out and say like this is completely outrageous, morally wrong, and destructive, and that the only people doing who are speaking out in that way are completely ignorant 16-year-olds who want to take away our freedom to use power. I mean, that is, you know, that outrages me much more than the, than the media's fawning over Thunberg. Um, she goes on, there a few more points she makes. She was asked what was the most important thing the public could do to help prevent the climate emergency, as the media now calls it. And her answer, I thought, was pretty interesting. She said, the key is to try to understand the crisis. I think that once you fully understand the climate and ecological emergencies, then you know what you can do as well. And of course, there's a lot of things you can do in everyday life, but we cannot be focusing on these individual things you can do. We have to see the full picture. Uh, and I mean, I definitely agree with her that the number one thing is to understand the issue and even to understand the full picture. Um, but of course, she can't actually be uh, talking about the full picture because she's never talking about the value of energy including the value of affordable energy to help us um, cope with the challenges of climate. But nevertheless, that is uh, the, that focus on understanding being the at the forefront of the issue, I think, is really crucial because that's why I don't think this is something that, you know, for people who do want to stand up, this is not about holding placards and chanting 
and it's not you know about having or only having you know some clever memes or some clever you know two minute YouTube videos. It is actually help people understand understand the superiority and indispensability of fossil fuels and help them understand the true nature of its side effects, including the the impact of CO2 on the climate. And, you know, it's an actual real education in energy and its side effects that I think are necessary in order to know what's right and then in, in order to persuade others of what's right. And then... Uh, I'll end with a few more points she makes. When everyone else seems to just compromise and have this double moral that's, yeah, this is important, but also I can't do that right now and I'm too lazy and so on. I can't do that. I want to walk the walk and practice as I preach. So that's what I'm trying to do because if I'm focused on something and if I know something and I decide to do something, then I go all in and it seems like others are not doing that right now. So uh, unquote. And one final point I'll make about this is she definitely has not gone anywhere close to all in. That Thunberg, despite warring against fossil fueled civilization, is still a parasite off that civilization, couldn't survive without that civilization, couldn't have gotten to the United States without that civilization, and couldn't be waging her war in that civilization without relying on it. And so, no, the only way to go all in if you oppose fossil fuels is basically to abandon society, is to abandon civilization, and you could go live like a primitive somewhere, although even then you'll be cashing in on all of the knowledge that you got while you were raised in that civilization that was only made possible by fossil fuels. But, I mean, I think that, you know, as much as this is a completely ignorant person who there's no reason that we should be listening to, and we're only listening to because... You know, she's a puppet for politically correct ideas. I think this moral clarity that she that she has and conveys, and this willingness to, you know, bluntly make distinctions between good and evil, that is something that really should be emulated. But it should be emulated from an intellectual, informed perspective, and from a perspective that actually values human flourishing, rather than this completely. Uh, let's call it politely uh, <laughs> violating this very dictum, confused, you know, ravings of a 16-year-old. Stefan, any thoughts? Yeah, I think your your last point is, is really hitting the nail there because there's something putting me off with this activist and, you know, there's a German uh, uh, version, Luisa Neubauer, uh, of her in, in the German language realm, and um, so notice how these uh, high school teenagers never engage in any real discussion. They never, as you said, they're not intellectually informed. Uh, they say, I want you to panic about something that I don't define. And so it's, a, it's almost like a religious theme where some revelation comes from somewhere else that I can't explain, but I just know the truth and everyone who's against that truth is evil and everyone who's for this is, is good. And so it's not... So the moral clarity needs to be based on something that is um, explainable and real and informed. And, you know, then you can say, oh, yeah, that's, this is... 
like something like fascism, you have can explain why that is bad and why it needs to be fought. And then, you know, you can say, well, you know, this is what we should do and, and this is what government should do. But these climate activists, these low information climate activists, I would say, um, they are not speaking truth to power. They are threatening government power, which is the strongest and most violent power imaginable against people who keep us alive every day. And so this this moral outrage needs to be not based on some emotional attachment, but on some very rational, careful analysis on what, what's the right course of action and how, how do we get our power or energy that, that powers our civilization. And you can't just take that away. And um, yeah, it's really... To me, it's a real outrage that nobody asks them, you know, complex questions about this, the actual thing going on with uh, not only climate, but also with energy, right? So because there are serious questions, if, if you follow the wrong prophet here in this theme, um, you're going to kill a lot of people. And that's a big responsibility. And so we can't infantilize uh, this issue. And uh, I think these activists are doing that. Yeah, and I want to... Uh, I definitely want to underline that point that you made because I was being slightly tongue in cheek. It's like, I definitely don't think that this is like, you know, it's, this is not the right approach to the issue of just getting the conclusion wrong. Like it really is an issue of you need to have understanding, but the, what, what I think is just striking to me is how people who actually do have an understanding, who have thought about this issue, who understand the value of energy, who understand the state of climate science, it is very rare that they have any sort of backbone and any sort of, you know, uncompromising moral attitude and willingness to name those things. And the few who do, you know, we deserve uh, eternal gratitude toward, and particularly given that they're actually speaking truth to power because they're the ones who are increasingly being silenced and uh, who some people literally want to ban from the debate. And, uh, you know, and, and so it's, it's more vital than ever when you have that kind of dynamic, when the people with an actual understanding and willing to speak truth to power are increasingly drowned out of the debate. In fact, one of the things that has happened uh, in the last few weeks is um, it's become clear that Google is, it's not right to put it as censoring it, but they're making uh, Alex's um, Prager video on the Green New Deal very hard to find. So that if you search for what's the deal with the Green New Deal, the exact title of his video, you don't get any videos with that in the title. Instead, you get a bunch of things praising Ocasio-Cortez uh, that are viewed much less than his video, which has, you know, well over a million views. And um, it, certainly Google and YouTube have the right to do that, though they should be open about what they're doing. And though it should be very disturbing if an important, crucial debate is being regarded as undebatable. And, uh, you know, if you and if you think about what's going on with an activist like Thunberg, it's like she doesn't just want to shut down the energy that we need. She wants to shut down the other side. She, one of the things that she said is that she wouldn't meet with people who disagree with her, you know, even if they wanted to, that, uh, that, you know, they should just shut up and listen to the scientists and that she's here to basically frighten us into action. So <laughs> please uh, don't mistake my uh, 
um, what would you call it? You know, don't mistake the kind of point that I made uh, for an actual for an actual view that there was anything positive going on there. I think it's, you know, um, it is the complete opposite of what a climate thinker is, and that's what we should all aim to be, as well as activists for what we regard as uh, the true position, which is that energy is vital and it's being opposed. Stefan, what's your next story? Uh, consulting organization McKinsey is regularly evaluating Germany's energy transition policy um, and the progress with that. Um, and it just recently published another evaluation. So they do this since 2012. And the summary says that most of the goals of the energy transition policy will be missed and that supply security will not be guaranteed after shutdown of nuclear and coal power, which is supposed to happen in the 2020s, 2030 realm. Uh, and so that's, that's, of course, not news for power listeners, but it's important to understand that even these formal goals will not be reached that there's already an issue with uh, German energy supply, and particularly power supply. And if current trends uh, uh, prevail in emission reduction, the 2020 milestone will only be reached eight years later, according to McKinsey. Um, and the current favorable weather for solar and wind has led to a significant reduction for 2019 in the power sector, although significant imports of power had to happen to, to make that happen. Uh, but in the transport and industry, uh, the emissions actually increased in the German economy. So we see here that talking about wind and solar, you know, even if they could be made very successful, they only solve part of the problem with uh, getting off fossil fuels, which is the, go the stated goal of the energy transition in Germany, of course. Um, and over the next 10 years, over 40% of firm capacity in the power sector will be retired, and this will be mostly coal and nuclear. And without additional measures, uh, McKinsey says supply uh, security could be in danger. Um, and their recommendation then is, and you know, it's almost hilarious if it wasn't that serious, is that additional renewables and what they call flexible capacity, which of course means natural gas power, uh, and some mothballed capacity uh, should be kept as a reserve. And, and these are the things that, that Germany needs to uh, focus on to make this energy transition successful. And by successful, they of course always mean like achieving the goals that the German government has set, not, you know, having a secure energy supply. Uh, and so in addition, some additional transmission lines uh, need to come online. And the transmission bottleneck is actually a big issue here in Germany. Uh, if that's not resolved, the 2020 milestones might, not, might only be reached in the late 2030, so even a decade later um, uh, than they are by current trends. And uh, so you can imagine this uh, not in my backyard attitude uh, being a real obstacle to building more and more transmission lines to get the intermittent power from solar and, and wind that is generated somewhere, you know, in the North Sea and maybe needed in Munich in, the su in southern Germany. Uh, you need a lot of uh, infrastructure capacity to bring that from A to B. 
and that that is way behind of schedule. Uh, they also have something positive to say about uh, goal achieving. So they say there's a quote-unquote stable renewable uh, energy jobs, which only slightly declined. And I want to remind everyone that this was, you know, in America it's supposed to be, but also in Germany it's supposed to be the big job growth machine, right? So this is a job of the future and, and only slightly declined. So that's that's a success, according to McKinsey. Um, and the industrial uh, industry power rates uh, are only 6.2% above the European average, down from 14% above EU average in 2012. And the residential power prices, of course, continue to rise because that's where the brunt of the cost will be paid for. Um, and renewable energy, which also includes hydro and biomass and so on, is about... 37% of power generation and might continue to rise. Uh, power generation, of course, is different than consumption, but that's uh, the data we, we get in the official uh, databases. But um, we will see by 2023 when the remaining nuclear capacity is banned in Germany, according to current law, uh, the country will probably become a net importer of power. And uh, in the meantime, the government just this uh, last week announced that it will spend another 40 billion euros, uh, which is slightly more in, in US dollars, um, over the next four years on climate policies to cut the greenhouse gas emissions by 55% over the, uh, the 1990 levels by 2030. And one point I, that's very important, they always take this 1990 uh, starting point in the statistics and uh, that is because the reunification of Eastern and Western Germany led to a dismantling of the Eastern German heavy industry, which was uh, quite a big emitter, of course. And so naturally, by the collapse of that Soviet-style economy, uh, you get a lot of emission reductions, right? So that's, that's already cheating. Um, so a lot of people outside Germany don't, don't know this context, but they always take this 1990 level. Um, as a as a starting point, because that's when when the Eastern German economy still was uh, putting out some heavy emissions, and then after that it collapsed in the 1990s. Um, yeah, so that that's uh, that just shows that these climate commitments are a black hole for government spending, right? Because Germany will just continue every few years to reevaluate and say, oh, we need to spend more money on these goals, and then they will likely not achieve them as long as people are free to actually use more and more energy because as long as Germans will get wealthier uh, we want to consume more resources we want to you know live a better life and longer and happier life and this requires a lot of energy this requires a lot of resources and and products and and uh, being productive and that requires a lot of energy and much of that energy and most of that energy in Germany still comes from fossil fuels and one of the things that's not covered by this evaluation, by the way, is uh, the outsourcing of emissions in terms of imported products. So something that happens, so, uh, you know, you might imagine a country like America that has a shale revolution going on with cheap natural gas as feedstock for manufacturing and also uh, low energy prices as a result of that. 
that draws a lot of the industrial capacity from a country that, like Germany that is just punishing with taxes and, and high wages uh, and, th and so on uh, um, the industry sector, industrial sector. And so what happens and if the German economy grows is we are going to import more and more stuff from places like Southeast Asia, right? And so these products that we import will, of course, embody a lot of uh, CO2 emissions. Yeah. You know, the manufacturing in China will, you know, use coal power. And these are emissions for the same product that previously was maybe manufactured somewhere in Europe or even in Germany. And this is not accounted for. So it could well be that Germany is not actually uh, on net reducing its emissions. Maybe it's even increasing its emissions, right? Uh, by consuming more and more stuff that requires CO2 emissions. But we won't know because this accounting is, uh, I would say, a bit rigged in favor of uh, showing too rosy a picture. Even so, I would really like to hear, you know, from the all of these supporters of the Green New Deal and its variants, like, explain why you think you're going to do better than Germany. Like, if you're saying, oh, 10 years, it will remake the economy, will be 100% renewable. It's like, what reason do you have to think that you're actually going to be able to do better than this, you know, advanced economy that's really put forward a lot of effort to, uh, I mean, I hate to even phrase it this way, but wean itself off of fossil fuels. And it, it would be interesting to hear, you know, what they had to say on that front. My next story is uh, the Trump administration is planning to significantly weaken federal rules that would have forced Americans to use more energy efficient light bulbs. And this would be, it would eliminate requirements that effectively meant that most light bulbs in the United States had to be either LEDs or fluorescent to meet the new efficiency standards. And surprise, surprise, environmentalists are up in arms saying that this is going to increase CO2 emissions. And of course, because they're very concerned with uh, costs, that this will cost Americans money. You know, it's funny that they worry about costs whenever it's in their favor and whenever they want to impose incredible costs it's well you know you have to it, we, we don't need to talk about those but in any case um you know while it's true that high efficiency lights like leds can reduce energy costs you know it's also important to keep in mind that they also have upfront costs that are higher and you know that for a particular consumer in a particular use they might not make up that purchase price for a long time and maybe not at all and so the you know the the way that i think about this is i mean look um light bulbs are not necessarily the most important thing in the world it's not necessarily a hill to die on but this is definitely illustrative of the, just the central planning mentality of the greens that you know in the in the real world each of us as individuals faces a unique cost benefit analysis like it's not light bulbs in general, but I'm selecting them for particular use where maybe LEDs are more expensive uh, and I have to make a judgment about will it lower my costs in, in my case over what time. And then it's not only financial costs that I can be concerned with, like aesthetics is a real value and I can have real reasons for thinking that, no, I want a traditional kind of light bulb um, for whatever reason. And the, the whole central planning mentality says, no, we're going to make 
a one-size-fits-all decision and your judgment is completely irrelevant. And then once you have that, then it becomes a real question. Well, like, okay, well, what if this central planner is wrong? And, you know, what if they're wrong, not just about like the cost or value of a light bulb, but, you know, say the affordability and reliability of solar and wind. You know, one of the one of the reasons why individual choice is so vital is like you get to direct your life, but also you take responsibility for your choices so that, you know, if you get something wrong, you're the one who pay, pays the price. Whereas when you have these kind of collective decision making uh, actions, it's you have a bunch of people who are who don't bear responsibility for their choices and are able to impose responsibility, their choices on others. And God only knows what their incentives are and the quality of their judgment. Uh, a further thought on this is, you know, we've had a, a few pieces of good news recently. You know, the clean power plan uh, is being rolled back. Methane rules rolled back. We have, you know, this light bulb, a few other things that um, the Trump administration has done to try to slightly reduce, you know, the the some of the environmental regulations that have been strangling business. But on the other hand, what we have is on the other side is people competing for how fast they can just outlaw fossil fuels and take totalitarian control over energy and the economy. And that it's that latter side that is positioned as idealistic and has the high ground. And so, you know, as much as there are these kind of good things happening at a very minor level, the overall trend, I think, is really frightening. And you can't rely on any administration making these kinds of small changes in today's context. As you need a dramatic change in the culture's evaluation of our energy alternatives and ultimately of their ideal. Because so long as you have a culture where the ideal is not impacting nature and people are not taught to think, look at the full context of our energy choices, then the best you're going to be able to do is slightly loosen the noose for a few years until the other side gets into power and then you know has the opportunity to strangle everybody way more and it just becomes extremely hard to undo and uh so you know not to be uh not to be pessimistic but i think it's good to keep in mind you know as we're considering something like a light bulb ban that this you know you have to see it in the context of the bigger picture and of the need to really profoundly change how people think about all these issues rather than see it solely on its own merits Stefan, any thoughts? Yeah, so uh, I was a big opponent of the mandate for compact fluorescent light bulbs because they had such a bad lighting quality. Um, and so people argued that you could actually save money with them. I, I'm not so sure that was true. Um, but it's, it's really important that you can, you know, make your own decision because... Um, you know, as I said, governments can make wrong decisions and not all decisions make um, sense for every consumer. So how, how would a you know, bureaucrat know whether I need a compact fluorescent or an LED or an incandescent light bulb? And just recently I, let, I read something about a new development where researchers made an incandescent light bulb 
you know multiple times as efficient as the original version of that so it's now in you know closer to to leds and other other things than before and so the bureaucracy will probably not react to that until years after and takes this into consideration so i think i think everyone has an incentive to choose uh, the best light source that they that they need and i'm very happy with my led spots in my ceiling right now that i'm sitting beneath so um and i'm as much uh, you know use as much energy as you can advocate as there is uh, and i'm i still prefer the leds um, not so much because they're efficient but because they, they look really great uh, and I, I think that they will save me money in the long term but yeah it's important that we that we make our own decisions and that, that the government doesn't centrally plan the economy because that's that's always a disaster and uh, yeah i, I think uh, it's a it's a mood thing now, but but there shouldn't be any kind of regulation on that. Like it's not going to to hold the progress. So there's not someone who says, "Well, I will use a microchip from the 1980s because it uses more energy." That's that's not going to happen. So people will, will choose make good choices for themselves for their own uh, uh, money, and uh, I, I don't see any reason why there should be any kind of regulation of light bulbs. So I've read a story in Politico of all places, and uh, this is a story about how California has fared with its green jobs. Uh, so California is ahead of other states in the United States with uh, uh, this Green New Deal uh, stuff. And uh, so this article, interestingly, um, warned against these uh, claims of how this will be a boost to to the economy and create a lot of uh, jobs and of course many democratic presidential hopefuls are advertising their sort of billions and, and trillions of investments um, and saying yeah this is going to be the green economy and, and going to create a lot of jobs and uh, the article then uh, describes this uh, as an elusive term what is really a green job what what counts as that and it calls uh, the California experience a mixed record. So here are two quotes from the article. California's mixed record of using public investments and environmental mandates to create quote-unquote green jobs raises serious questions about the promises of some Democratic presidential candidates to use economy-transforming investments in environmentally-friendly technologies to put millions of people to work. And the second quote later then is, the Federal Bureau of Labor Statistics stopped tabulating green jobs in 2013, as did California's Employment Development Department, after it found, quote, no discernible evidence that green firms were more likely to create jobs than non-green firms, unquote. Um, but ultimately, I think this article fails to reveal the fundamental economic fallacy behind this uh, green job narrative or idea. Um, and gives California far too much credit for what it created there. Uh, but it highlights the importance of job numbers, right? So everyone on the left and on the right uh, in all debates and in political debates in general um, talks about, yeah, we will, we will create jobs or the government will create jobs. And so it's essential to understand what jobs in this context is. 
uh, and what is proposed by something like a Renew deal. And so what they essentially do when they are proposing, yeah, we will, uh, you know, replace coal and nuclear and natural gas with wind and solar. And these technologies also uh, create more jobs. And what they are proposing by this is we will do essentially the same, you know, like um, creating transportation services or grid power for our homes and industries, but in a more expensive and less, effic less efficient way. That is what they are really proposing here, because human labor, jobs, is an input factor, just like, you know, materials are, or energy is. And this means cost. So an analogy would be here, uh, let's suppose uh, Don and I would own a shale gas well, and uh, we would just produce uh, the same amount of barrels of oil every day, just as a neighboring well. But our special feature, our engineering innovation, is that we use 10% more labor. You know, we need more work hours to produce the same amount of, of oil barrels. And everyone would say, yeah, that's insane. You, you would just have a cost disadvantage. You don't want more people to work for you to produce the same amount of oil, right? Um, and productive uh, operations, of course, want to reduce the amount of labor. So some of the economic progress is that we can produce the same uh, amount of material like oil or computers or anything else uh, with fewer and fewer work hours less labor, create fewer jobs. That's that's progress in, in economic terms. And of course, you can use government force to, you know, uh, use a technology that requires more labor and therefore higher cost, but that's not going to benefit the economy overall. So this narrative that you often hear in political debates is, oh yeah, we, we just replace technology A with technology B and then we will, uh, you know, employ more people. That is a big warning signal that this is going to be quite expensive and make everyone poor overall. Um, but there's also a more honest version of this that goes something like this. And I think uh, Joe Biden had this, for example, in the Democratic debate. Um, and this is, yeah, we are going to, and I think also Elizabeth Warren had this uh, um, idea very prominently on her agenda. And this is like... We will make a government investment, of course, there's always a government there, um, into to become a technology leader in something like green technologies like solar, wind, battery electric vehicles, you know, grid storage technologies and so on. We'll make a big investment. And then we are when we are the market technology leader, we will sell our products globally. And that will, you know, domestically in the United States and create a lot of jobs. And that, you know, that's a more serious version of this. But if this would really work, uh, you know, you wouldn't listen to power right now because the Soviet Union would have won the Cold War. You know, if central planning and this kind of innovation thing would work, um, the world would look very differently. So this is quite debunked. And China has also debunked this idea by uh, taking over the solar panel market. Right. You might have heard that, uh, you know, the majority of. American installation of solar panels comes from China because they use cheap coal power to manufacture large amounts of solar panels at very low prices. Um, and so this this has, this is uh, not like this green tech job machine, uh, but actually uh, you know a Chinese job machine. And even if that was working, even if you could do that, uh, you know, as an American central planner and, and make this like uh, 
super innovative move with government investments, uh, globally and everyone else would adapt to that and say, yeah, well, yes, we need to do solar, wind and batteries for our grid power and nothing else. Then globally, the economy would still not be better off because we would still replace efficient technologies like coal and nuclear and natural gas with something inferior that drives up the cost. So Germany is a primary example. We, ju we just had this, this power hour. So this is, this is like a really, really dishonest narrative. And I think if a politician thinks that this, and they have this r rhetoric uh, about World War II investment, and they should really call it a World War II sacrifice because the American economy in World War II produced a lot of tanks and airplanes and ships and, and so on and, and you know um, in this war effort and but it didn't make Americans wealthier it was a huge sacrifice like like things had to be rationed for the civilian population and you know in, in England it was even worse because uh, uh, it was in, in more dire straits economically and um, so you had this rationing going on and you had, you know, the wealth declined for the civilians while the industrial output was focused on the war effort, you know, producing bombs that then would explode and benefit nobody but, you know, would serve for the war goal, which was necessary at the time, of course. But that is a sacrifice, right? And an honest assessment um, of the situation would say, well, we need to do this, we need to invest this, we need to spend this government money and have an economic sacrifice. And then we would want an honest assessment of how much this will hurt. But what we get from, you know, the democratic presidential debates, for example, is, oh, no, it will be great. And at the end of the day, you will actually get a better job and you will save some money on it. You know, we will destroy all the existing capital, we'll replace it with something that is uh, you know, less productive, less efficient. And, but overall, we will all be winners on this and we will be wealthier and better off ultimately. So now you would have to make a very complex case about how this brutal sacrifice now will benefit us 50 years later in terms of climate damage. And if you would actually make that assessment, like even in the published literature, we've, we've talked about uh, William Nordhaus, the Nobel Prize winner on um, uh, climate economics, you know, that damage doesn't justify what they are proposing right now. But of course, they can have that discussion. So they are telling us, yeah, essentially lies about, you know, how this Green New Deal will be so, so beneficial that you don't actually sacrifice. The government just knows better how to grow the economy, create more jobs, better paying jobs, and, you know, save you money on your electricity bill. And that's not true. Yeah, I mean, one... One just basic point is like there's no problem of how to create jobs. One of my favorite stories uh, about the late economist Milton Friedman, I think he was in China at the time, but he saw some project that where people were digging a ditch with uh, shovels and he said, wouldn't it be more efficient, you know, to get some heavy machinery in here? And they said, oh, well, it's a jobs program. And his response was, oh, well, you didn't say it was a jobs program. If it's a jobs program, why don't you give him spoons? And it's, you can always create jobs, you can just take away uh, our ability to do things efficiently and productively. The real challenge is creating productive 
activities and productive businesses. And that takes discovery on a free market, it takes trial and error by entrepreneurs. And what that does is it creates productive jobs. It creates jobs that are actually increasing human beings standard of living. Because if your goal is just to create jobs, then you can create all kinds of welfare jobs that are completely inefficient and that in many cases shouldn't even exist. And that's what all of these sort of like government job creation programs are doing is at best uh, having more inefficient jobs and at worst often anti-productive jobs where, um, you know, when you're funding industries like the solar and wind industry that are actually harming our access to reliable, affordable energy um so that but the, the but the jobs creation is a benefit but a derivative benefit a derivative of actually figuring out the best way to produce things and that is something that cannot be centrally planned it can only be discovered by entrepreneurs taking risks with their own money and the money of people who voluntarily support them and out competing rivals on a free market and that's exactly what is absent from these dictatorial plans by the opponents of fossil fuels. If you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me, Don Watkins, at don at industrialprogress.net. And if you have any interest in a speech by Alex or anyone else from our team, we've got a lineup of great speakers at different price points, and you can just email me at don at industrialprogress.net. And Similarly, if you have any messaging projects that you would like to uh, have our help with potentially, we can schedule a brief discovery call to discuss your challenges and how we can help. Just email me. And finally, the best way that you can keep up to speed on everything that we're doing is to subscribe to our newsletter at alexepsteinlist.com. All right, hope you guys enjoyed this episode. We'll be back next week with some more great topics. Until then, this has been Dom Watkins and Stefan Henna on Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.